Hey guys, welcome to Word Books with Friends, episode number 10. Word Books with Friends, brought to you by the fine people at Nimbus Racing Rooms. Nimbus, don't be a Nimrod, leave your opponents in the clouds. I'm Chris. And I'm Paul. And today we're talking about the 10th chapter. Uh, actually, no, oops, wrong page. The 12th chapter in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, The Mirror of Erised. This is actually, like I just said to Paul, one of the chapters I'm most excited to talk about out of this podcast. Previously, it was uh, Diagon Alley, and then we uh, the next chapter with the sorting ceremony. There's a lot of stuff, actually, in this chapter that, like, this is all worth talking about. You know, and that, that might change, like, as we continue on, because we still have, like, five chapters left in the novel after, after this one. But I forgot how good this chapter actually is. Yeah, well, it feels almost like a Christmas present, right, Chris? Hey, it is, because they literally start this chapter off with, Christmas was coming. It's an old castle, and all the kids are like, ooh, it's actually quite cold in some of these classes. Like, down in the dungeon during uh, the potions class, like, everybody's trying to huddle around their uh, cauldrons just to keep a little bit warmer. And that reminds me of uh, during college, or university, if you will, and having to plan out how to get from class to class with cutting through as many buildings as possible because <laughs> I went to classes up here in Buffalo and it got real cold real quick. Oh, I I was talking to my girlfriend about, you know, going to school and how I'd always have to park in G lot, which if you go to Buff state is out, out, out past like Grant street. And I would have to walk, all the way across campus because my first class was in Rockwell Hall. So I was literally walking all the way from like Grant Street to Elmwood, 6.45 in the morning through the snow. It was a terrible situation. And then, you know, to kind of even tone it down a little bit, even back going to high school, if you had classes in the one wing of the school, it was so far away from where the furnace actually was in like in the school building, you would have to go get your jacket from your locker because you were literally on the complete opposite end of the school. And it was always so much colder there. Like it wasn't freezing, but there was like a definite chill hanging out in the air. So I can't believe that like for everything that they have in the wizarding world, they didn't have something else to circulate, circulate heat better than just fireplaces. Cause this, this was in the 90s. This book takes place like 1991. And we just got in the previous chapter that Hermione can light up a little fire and keep it in a jar at any time she wants. So There's literal dragons. <laughs> like, <laughs> and we know, like, we find out later, like, you can harness the, par- like, the uh, power of, like, dragon fire. Like, they probably could have done something else. But yeah, uh, a lot of uh, this chapter is just based off the fact that, hey, it is holidays namely Christmas at Hogwarts. So they're kind of on their Christmas break. So a lot of the students wind up going home. So this chapter is mainly focused on Ron and Harry kind of palling around because uh, we find out that Hermione's gone back to spend her Christmas with her parents. Poor dentist. Uh, I mean, we, we know that they're muggles. She came from a, an all muggle family. Very accepting. You know, they, they had no qualms about sending her to, to wizard school, it seems. You got Malfoy trying to poke and needle Harry a little bit about 
having to stay at Hogwarts over the uh, winter break. His family doesn't want him back. And Harry's like, you know, you got nothing on me. I'm Teflon over here. You know, I caught the golden snitch during Quidditch. I'm kind of being, he's kind of got the hero shine on him. And he also knows that Dudley's aren't great people. And he's like, no, make fun of them all you want, man. <laughs> Can't touch me. He's like, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, but we also find out, you know, Ron and Fred and George are staying home as, or not home, staying at Hogwarts as well, because they're actually going to Romania to visit their brother, Charlie. And Paul, you kind of had a, a good way to look at this too. Definitely believe that Mr. and uh, Mrs. Weasley did this on purpose. It seems a little bit too soon to be like, hey, Ron, why don't you invite your friend Harry to stay with us during the Christmas break? That seems like a little overstepping. If they're like, you know what? They know that Harry doesn't have anybody. He's alone. He got dropped off at the at Crink's Cross alone. Nobody was there to see him off. They probably have an inkling that his family life isn't great. Maybe Ron's told him a little something about it. So they're like, me and your dad, we're going to run off to Romania, visit Charlie. You kids, Percy... Fred, George, Ron, you all stay at Hogwarts where you can't get into too, too, too much trouble and I'll hang out there. And, you know, if you're hanging out with Harry Potter, who has really nobody to spend the Hollywood days with, even better. We haven't met Arthur Weasley yet, but I definitely think Molly would have uh, kind of seen that through. Yeah, because also at this point, too, we know Ron's a little bit. He's on the younger side. He's the youngest brother, but he's still, you know, 10, 11 years old. Fred George... They're three years older, so we can put them like 14, 15. Percy's also like the oldest, so he's probably around like 16, we can imagine. He's got one more year, so yeah, he's 16, going to be 17. So, I mean, at that point, I think they're all of a responsible enough age that if they were, you know, home alone at the borough, they'd be functioning. Like, they're not going to be too bad. I remember being left home alone when I was, oh my gosh, like seven or eight for the first time and like being excited because i was like oh i can watch tv and like i made myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich you know like so in your teens being left home alone for you know granted however long it might have been because i'm imagining like they probably want to make a trip of going to see charlie in romania so they're probably going to be gone for at least maybe like a week or two that's not that bad as a teenager let alone a teenager who can do magic. You don't have to worry about too much at that point. But this brings us to the holiday season. We got Hagrid bringing in a huge uh, Christmas tree. We got Professor Flickwick and McGonagall decorating the Great Hall. And especially in the movies with these Christmas scenes, for whatever reason, it uh, my wife is it latched on to Harry Potter being Christmas movies. These are movies to watch near Christmas which gets really strange when there's a bunch of just uh, genocide happening on screen in the last movie. But, you know, Christmas. Yeah, it's, it's still there. And, well, I think a lot of that kind of speaks to the overall theme of Harry Potter, too, because a lot of it's just based off of it's based off of family. And the holiday season is one of just sitting back and enjoying everything that you have with your family. So that makes sense in the, in the place of the books. Like it's such a big point. Like 
I think almost every one of the books has like a, hey, here we are, Christmas chapter. Yeah, yeah. Because even in the last book, they're at Godric's Hollow, and they are at the family gravesite, and then they realize that it must be Christmas. Yeah. I've always thought Harry Potter was about overcoming one's own mortality. Well, see, yeah. when, when we get to our uh, our epilogue episode, because that's what we decided we'll do in, in the space between episodes, I think that's kind of the overall theme of the Harry Potter books and essentially like books one and seven at most it's dealing with death in one way or another, but discussion for a later point Mm -hmm. for me, as much as I love Halloween again, was born in October. I love spooky season. I love pumpkin flavored, everything. It really seems like Christmas is the season to stay at, at Hogwarts. Like I feel like even, you know, having a family, I'd be like, well, no, like, yeah, it's nice to see my family at Christmas time, but Christmas at Hogwarts is going all out because you're getting like a whole big great hall grand feast. And it's the middle of the day feast too. It's like a lunchtime feast because later on, then you make sandwiches with leftovers and you have your Christmas cakes and everything like that. Everything to describe is wonderful. And before we get further into everything, I do want to say chapter number 12 starts off with something that when you're going back and rereading this book or, you you know, reading it for the first time after maybe you've seen the movies starts off with something so jarring that when you have the information that you have at the end, you're like, how did they get away with this? And I'm going to read the paragraph as is written from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Chapter 12, The Mirror of Erised, written by J.K. Rowling. The lake froze solid, and the Weasley twins were punished for bewitching several snowballs so that they followed Quirrell around, bouncing off the back of the turban. We learn at the end of the book that Quirrell's partnered up with Voldemort. We've talked about this already on the show. Fred and George are literally throwing snowballs at the Dark Lord's face. And it's just played off in this that, like, it's a ha-ha-ha. And, you know, you can talk about revisionist history as much as you want, because it's probably pretty certain that J.K. Rowling had no idea that she was going to be getting a a full seven books to tell the story. Like, I don't know what kind of deal she told, but, like, if you even just look at the first book, at this point, she knows that Voldemort's going to be bonded to, you know, Professor Quirrell, and he's wearing the turban to hide his presence on his body. I'm surprised that this didn't come back in any kind of big way. Like even just like through the villainous speech at the end, as he's talking to Harry, he's like, I'm going to get your dumb Weasley friends who are throwing snowballs at me. It's so weird. Well, this is one shard of Voldemort, right? This is part of his soul that is latched on to it's professor Quill. It's part of his soul. Like, because he was looking to get the resurrection stone back, AKA the Sorcerer's Stone, a.k.a. the Philosopher's Stone, mm-hmm. to regain his like full body. But there was enough of him there that was able to bond with Quirrell and, you know, be enough of a threat that he had Quirrell, you know, break into Gringotts to try to get the stone before, before Hagrid had taken it up. I have to say, maybe Voldemort doesn't blame the Weasleys so much for this digression. Ah. <sighs> Maybe Voldemort isn't aware that it was the Weasley twins. Okay. 
Professor McGonagall was like, okay, who else would have come up with this charm to do this? We know who it was. True, true, true. And she's the head of the Gryffindor house. She would be the head of the people punishing. So, you know, maybe she kept it under wraps and didn't tell Professor Quirrell who was actually behind it. And I think Voldemort's going to blame Quirrell more than anybody else. He, yeah, he is that person. He's not the best boss. <laughs> he's, he's not the best at anything. Like he's pretty all around, pretty terrible, and that's what makes him a he makes him a villain. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going back through my notes now. Um, well, we got the trio doing a lot of research. You know, when they were trying to help Hagrid with the tree, they mentioned. You know, we were going to the library anyways to do some research, If you, unless you want to tell us who Nicholas Vamel was. And they're going through all the wrong books, knowing as because now we know who Nicholas Vamel was. Heck, he was an old chap in the uh, the second Fantastic Beasts movie, somewhere mm-hmm. to find him. He's definitely not going to show up in anything, any book that mentions the 20th century, our time, modern ma- magical discoveries, or recent that's their problem. This guy is, is an 18th century, classic Renaissance, Dark Ages guy that developed Sorcerer's Stone. And that's what ultimately gets me, though, is because at this point, we know that name's familiar to them. At this point, we know it's familiar to us because right from the get-go, when Harry's on the Hogwarts Express and he's opening up Chocolate Frogs with Ron... He reads out loud Dumbledore's chocolate frog card to us, which mentions Dumbledore's partnership with Nicholas Flamel. So we've already heard that name. And this could have been Ron's time to shine because we know Ron's already been an avid collector of chocolate frog cards. Heck, he's only missing two of them. He's pulled dozens of Dumbledores. If only he had paid attention, he could have been the hero and been like, Oh, Nicholas Flamel, he knows Dumbledore. Ron, you dropped the ball. There is one thing I could say here. That, <laughs> you know, I used to collect baseball cards. Nerd. I, I had a Barry Bonds card, but I didn't have Barry Bonds rookie card. I had a Barry Bonds MVP card. Even though I had a Barry Bonds card, I might not necessarily have had that specific card. Maybe... You know, like each Dumbledore card has a little different snippet I mean, about how great Dumbledore is. It's possible, but the way Ron kind of portrays it, it sounds like that's kind of his, you know, collector's passion. It, it seems like he would want to be the person that, like, oh, well, there's four different Dumbledores. I have, you know, these three. I don't know, because he's he even knows, you know, which cards he's missing. He mentions them by name. Like, he's... He's that up-to-date on it. And I'm thinking that's the only way I can get past it, you know, in my own headcanon, is to be like, no, yeah, he's got, like, about a dozen Dumbledores. They each have a different story. And at that point, do I really care about what little story that I have there, or did I have a Dumbledore? And that's the thing. Like, I think some of it might just come from the fact that, yes, he is the youngest brother of the entire family. He's just happy for whatever he has. He doesn't necessarily pay too much attention to it, maybe. It's just like the fact that he has all of this. Because, you know, he's the only person in his family that does. Doesn't matter what it is, but he has it. And maybe some of his older brothers knew that Ron has been collecting them and just, like, passes off their chocolate frog cards to Ron, too. 
it seems like something to collect, but I don't think anybody pays too much attention to to the collection itself. That's true. But as we get further into Christmas, uh, it is that time of year. Uh, something that I have notes on is actually the Christmas gifts that Harry winds up getting. Again, you see this in the movies, but they only really focus on two of them more than anything else. But the very first gift that uh, Harry opens is actually a handmade or like hand whittled flute from Hagrid, which again, Hagrid's a class act. Like he knows Harry probably isn't going to wind up getting a lot of gifts. So he takes the time to hand make Harry a flute for Christmas. That's just so, so nice. He knows he spent the Dursleys. He knows where he's coming from. <laughs> and brings me to the my next gift, though, is Harry actually winds up getting a Christmas present from the Dursleys, which it doesn't sound like Harry's ever gotten much for them. So part of me thinks maybe this is uh, them trying to save face now that Harry's out at wizarding school, so they have to send him something because they wind up sending him a uh 50 pence piece. I think that's a great call. They would be the couple that would want to save face. They don't want Harry being like, no, I got nothing for my aunt and uncle. And maybe that's the lowest amount that they could spend on Harry while still saying they got him something. A 50 pence piece is oddly shaped because Ron does make mention of, wait, this is money? What a weird shape. It's actually a seven-sided coin. It's a heptagon like when i first looked at it i'm like oh that's weird it's an octagon nope only seven sides for us americans that are wondering about that a 50 pence piece is equal to about 62.5 cents so it's not a lot but you have to kind of assume since they do have some you know very minor knowledge to the wizarding world for what it is like if anyone saw Harry open that present, they could have thought like, oh, wow, like they're sending Harry a lot of money because nobody seems to know how real currency works. I mean, yeah, there are some muggle-born kids that have an idea, but Ron doesn't know. Like, it's fascinating to Ron that that has so many sides. Anytime I see currency from any other country, I'm always like, oh, this is weird. <laughs> like a toonie. Come on. That's a coin it's within a, a coin. It's a cool-looking coin, though. So, you know, if I came across a seven-sided coin, I'd be interested in it, and I'd probably, you know, use that to scratch off my lotto tickets. To scratch off the numbers on my back of my gift cards. There it is. The, the gift that Harry definitely won the lottery on, though, is his Weasley sweater. Because every year, Molly Weasley knits a sweater for all of the Weasley kids, and this year, Harry was included in that. And it's mentioned that Aries has done a little bit nicer than the rest of them. But also because, you know, yeah, Molly knows where Harry's coming from. He's probably not getting a lot of gifts. He He's part of the family at that point. And that just exudes that Weasley warmth that you're going to get for the, the rest of this entire series of books. Fred and George both get blue. Well, because they're, they, <laughs> they know that they're Gred and Forge. Uh, Ron gets a maroon which he hates maroon Uh, we don't get to know what what color Percy gets right we don't but it has a P on it for prefect we're told Mm -hmm. strangely enough Harry gets emerald green Mm. 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 much like Slytherin (gasps) 
this is one of the two gifts that they really kind of focus on in the movies. And I think any Harry Potter fan, if you wake up Christmas morning and you run over to the tree and you open it up and you see a Weasley sweater in there. Oh, you'd be stoked. There's just going to be you. There's something about it. You are so pumped to open that up. And I'm blessed enough to live, you know, down the road from Universal Studios. I can buy so much, you know, Hogwarts or Harry Potter merchandise. And the one thing that eventually I want to treat myself to is a Weasley sweater because they do sell them. The two that are available, available, sorry, uh, are H and R. I'm totally buying myself that R one because that's my last initial. And yeah, granted, I don't wear a lot of long sleeve stuff here, like hoodies or sweaters, but just to have that Weasley sweater, I'd be, I'd be ecstatic. You know, I got that blue gray sweater. That's kind of a knit sweater and it's legitimately from the nineties because you know, I'm old that I called my Weasley sweater because it, it's kind of ill-fitting like, uh, it could have been a Weasley sweater. It's just missing the, uh, knitted in P for prefect. <laughs> P for prefect. Uh, the next two gifts that Harry gets, one of which isn't even mentioned at all in the movies again. And this is a bunch of chocolate frogs sent by Hermione, which again, class act because, you know, they're 11 year old kids. Like she doesn't have to send them anything. We can assume it's maybe the fact that her parents are like, oh, hey, do you have any friends at school? Do you, do you want to get them a gift? And she knows that they, they're they into the chocolate frogs because, hey, that's where she walks in on them on the Hogwarts Express. Like, they're opening up chocolate frogs. Like, that's maybe her touch point for them. She gets Ron a bunch of Birdie Bots flavor beans, or at least a package of it. And I think what's more endearing is you know she had to go out and get wizarding money. Mm-hmm. More so, she had to she had to go to her parents and say, "Hey, you have to go get wizarding money." And who knows what the exchange rate is like on that? I know we talked about it in a previous episode, but they would have to go find a goblin someplace. Like it, it'd be tough. Yeah. Uh, and then the final big gift is an actual invisibility cloak from an unknown source, which we will learn who that is at the very end of the chapter. Like it's not a big lingering mystery. Uh, it's an invisibility cloak uh, from professor Dumbledore, which had actually once belonged to Harry's father. And the big thing with that caught me with this too, is the fact that as soon as Harry unwraps it and, you know, tries it on Ron knows what it is at an instant. So it's not the fact that invisibility cloaks don't exist because they do exist in Harry Potter. Uh, it's a known thing. But Harry's is very different because over time, the magic of an invisibility cloak will degrade. The one that Harry has doesn't. And we will learn about this later because it's actually one of the three Deathly Hollows. Of course, we will learn further on down the road that the Deathly Hollows is a trio of wizarding artifacts gifted to three uh, brothers, the Peverells, by death himself. The cloak actually being passed down from generation to generation through the Peverell family until it actually came to James. And then James actually went to Dumbledore with the cloak and Dumbledore then wanted to study it. So Dumbledore became in possession of it shortly before James and Lily were killed by Voldemort. And the one thing that I was like, 
Okay, well, did James know he had one of the fabled Deathly Hollows at this point? And that answer can't be found. So he knows he had an invisibility cloak that was passed down from family to family. And later on through the books, we will learn the tales of Beetle the Bard and the fable of the three brothers being one of them, with the Peverells being mentioned in name. So I'm wondering if maybe it was just like a family myth that like, oh, well, we have an invisibility cloak. This is the one passed down from death himself. And that was kind of the story of it. If James actually knew it was one of the hollows or if he was kind of curious about it, and that's why he brought it to Dumbledore, it kind of asks a lot of questions. And I think that's kind of a cool mystery. The fact that James knew what it was and maybe had some semblance of an idea of the magnitude of it, or it could have been like a, Hey, you know, antiques roadshow this for me. Let me know. Dumbledore is this, you know, the invisibility cloak. is this one of the hollows? And it's kind of like a sick irony that that's ultimately what led to their death. Because if, you know, they had had that hollow, like James probably could have passed it off to Lily to escape with Harry or, you know, it's a cloak. I mean, it seems pretty decent size. You know, they could have maybe used that to escape from, from Godric's hollow to, to fight another day. But it's a weird question. Like, did James know? Because that's, that's a big deal. Like this is literally a fabled wizarding artifact. I always assumed that it was James being like Dumbledore is the one person that we believe could, that could put an end to him. He could make better use of this than I could. Interesting to me at this point, too, because with everything that we learn about Dumbledore later on in the series, he already has the Elder Wand. At this point, he already has the Resurrection Stone. He had the Invisibility Cloak. Like, he he had all the Hollows. And one of his first, you know, urges is like, give it to an 11-year-old kid. Because it isn't his, and at this point, no, I mean it. It isn't his. The like, danger has passed. Well, I mean the danger for what Dumbledore knows, like Voldemort's out there. Like I don't think he knew it was that close to home, but you know, there's some semblance of cognizance in the wizarding world where even Hagrid's like, oh well, you know, there's people thinking that Voldemort's not really gone. Like he could still be out there. We have to assume Dumbledore's like no, like. He's not gone. Like, this is still a looming threat. Like, it's... We... Oh. And then, again, some of this goes into that whole... Well, no, Dumbledore's been grooming Harry for death the whole time. And maybe he knew that was just, like, one of the tools to get him to that point. It's it's weird. I, I think it's a good discussion to have throughout what Dumbledore knows and why he's setting these paths in front of these characters. Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of this, too, is something that's going to come out later, because we haven't even gotten to the uh, title titular Miravera said yet, which is which is nuts, because and that's the thing, like, it's that passing off of the invisibility cloak that made me really kind of latch on to this chapter a little bit more than I had on previous readings, because there's just so much hinging off of it based on what we know and learn, you know, over the next six books. But before we get to that, uh, we wound up getting more of a, more of that Hogwarts life. And I have a note about this 
where I wrote down, teachers are getting lit at a school function. Kids are almost getting murdered playing Quidditch. But later on, we learn that students still need a permission slip slide, permission slip signed to go to town during the off times of year. What is Hogwarts liability? Hogwarts probably has a pretty decent endowment from first four founders to keep. If anything happens to these kids while on school grounds, they're set. Mm. They're fine. Gets paid out of the uh, the good old Gringotts bank. So you think there's a goblin-run insurance insurance company or insurance fund? I don't know if it's insurance, but as long as it happens on school property, you know Hogwarts will take care of it. They got the money. Now, I don't know if Hogwarts would be like, no, the kid was in Hogsmeade and got ran over by, uh, you know, a thrustle that he didn't see because, you know, invisible. See his, <laughs> yeah, invisible until, you know, he was underneath their hose. Well, here's the thing. Anyone that uh, witnessed that would then see, see it. And I'm, I was saying that even the kid underneath the hose as he's going, oh, God. Like, would see the hose. Um, where I was going with it. Oof. Rough. And that and I don't know if Hogwarts wants to pay for that because that's not on them. So that's why they got to get the permission uh, slip signed. You know, there's the book of uh, the quill of acceptance and book of uh I already forgot. But anyways, I'm sure there's a book of indemnity and a quill of absolution <laughs> or injury. And I think all the parents that send their kids there kind of know what's up. Because kids have died on the premises before. We'll talk about that next book. <laughs> um, after Harry winds up getting the invisibility cloak for Christmas, um, he sees this as the perfect tool to help him kind of do some more digging into who Nicholas Flamel is. So one night he sneaks out to go into the restricted section of the Hogwarts library, which, you know, again, smart move. Not so much on Hogwarts part, because why would you have those books just in the library behind the velvet rope? Doesn't make sense. But ultimately, like it has its own built-in book-based alarm system with a screaming book that Harry happens to open by chance. He runs away from it and then stumbles upon the room that's actually hiding the titular Mirror of Erised, which, Paul, you never noticed before that Erised is Desire Backwards. Uh, that is correct. I just, we've kind of talked about our first read-throughs of these books. I was just hungry to get to the next chapter, next chapter. I didn't take my time and really think about it. And then it, it took you mentioning, yeah, it's Desired Backwards, and then me looking at the word and being like, oh, I'm an idiot. I didn't catch that at all. And the inscription, like this time, since I was reading it, I'm like, oh, Instead of me being like, oh, these are just silly gobbledygook, I try to spell it, you know, sound it out. That didn't work. So I so I want, I'm going to read it out loud because they do have it typed out. And it's, er, sit, stra, eru, ut, ew, carefree, ut, not, wush it. I did it like I was recorded backwards. I hope that made sense. You know what I could probably try to do is take it and actually insert <laughs> the thing to see how it sounds. I'm going I might play around with some editing of the show. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that one because it's it probably won't work. But Yeah, but I, I think it'd be interesting. No nonetheless. So if that happens, it'll happen here. 
Isu non vive we re history. If you actually write it out forwards, you know, from or backwards, uh, and actually then separate the words, it actually says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. And that's what bothers me about this inscription around the mirror, though, is because it's not spaced out like the actual words are written backwards. It's like a gibberish, like, oh, well, we took the words, but then we put the break in between them at different parts, which doesn't make sense if it's supposed to be the reflection of what it's actually saying. And if you're not going to reflect what it's actually saying, why even put it on the mirror to begin with, besides just to be like a weird, funky Easter egg, because like, oh, well, people know this is going to mirror. We'll make them do the extra work to try to figure out where the the word breaks are after. Because who holds up a mirror to a mirror? I don't know. If you know it's something that's mirrored and you want to figure out what it's saying. I guess that's true. But Harry doesn't hold up a mirror to the mirror. He... Jumping ahead like a little bit again, it takes Dumbledore literally being like, do you know what it means? Can you figure it out? Here's a hint. Here's another hint. Maybe it's something backwards, Harry. It's a mirror. God, like, it's it's kind of painful to read. I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's just, you know, Harry's 11. Maybe Dumbledore needs to spell it out a little bit more. But upon discovering the mirror, Harry looks in it and he sees a bunch of weird random people. And it he kind of literally has to sound it out where it's like, well, that person kind of looks like me, but that person has my eyes. Oh, wait, these are my parents. And then it's just kind of built around like, oh, well, maybe this is my family. And it's here where he learns that like, no, this is this is my entire family. And he's not realizing at this point that like the mirror showing him whatever he wants to see. It's just, oh, this is a mirror that shows my family. And he's so pumped about that. After sitting there for a few hours and then gets, hears a noise behind him and gets startled, he runs back and tells Ron all about it. And he wants to go back the next night with Ron to show him, like, hey, I want to see, you know, and I want to see your whole family. And Ron's like, dude, just stop by the bridge. (laughs) They're always there. (laughs) <laughs> I, I like that because I'm on that page now and it's literally like you can see them any old time <laughs> like just come around my house this summer <laughs> uh, and they end up going you know sneaking off together in, uh, both underneath the cloak and Ron doesn't see uh, his whole family he sees that he's head boy and he's holding both the house cup and the quidditch cup he's a little bit older and he's alone in the mirror looking triumphant Ron's like eh this is kind of dumb <laughs> I'm done. Uh, but again, they're kind of made aware by a noise behind them, and then they they run out, uh, which leads us to something that's going to come back later, where they're just kind of hanging out, and then they're playing wizard's chess, which if you had a computer in the early 90s, you probably played some semblance of this with battle chess. Because as soon as I read this, I'm like, oh, it's it's battle chess. And that became even more prevalent when I saw the movie. And I'm like, Oh, it's literally like pawns and knights attacking each other. Like, yeah, it's, it's battle chess. But here in the book, there's the edit feature where if the set that you're playing with doesn't trust you, they'll give you 
alternative moves he should be making and suggestions. Which I don't like. That takes, like, the skill and fun out of playing the game because, like, the pieces are literally telling you, like, no, I'm not going to do that. Move that piece. Do that. Do this instead. Like, that's kind of cheating. And also weird that the pieces know you're sending them to their death. It's a destruction and then a reassembly. We, we can assume that just kind of based off of like what we see later on and the fact that Ron's pieces are a little bit more battered and beat up because, you know, they've probably been passed around the family for, for a few years. Well, he's playing with his grandfather's old set, which I think is weird that you would have a set in only one side of the pieces. I mean, it could just be, you know, as collectible card game fans, it could just be like your family's magic deck. Like that's, that's, you know, what you guys got, like it gets bequeathed to you. And then, Hey, you know, this is, this is what you play with because I mean, it's the, I mean, not like the early nineties were so long ago, but I mean, it's, it's a while ago and it seems like the wizarding world takes a lot more, it seems like they have a lot more respect for the things that came before them. So you do have these things that kind of get passed down from, you know, age to age, whether it's a wizarding chess set or an invisibility cloak. Like my mom has my great grandmother's silver set that, you know, someday is going to come to me. I don't need it. I don't want it, but you know what? I have legit silverware that's going to come to me at some point point. In my future, I would rather have a chess set. Well, that's because you're not John Valjean and you're not buying his soul. Truth. Les Mis. Les Mis, book up. Ron's playing with his side of the pieces, and then Harry's playing with, like, Seamus's, right? Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't Ron have both the white side and the black side? Like, you know what I mean? I, like, but that's the thing. I think, I think, like, your family has maybe one part... And maybe the Weezys probably have like a full set because it seems like Ron knows how to play. Maybe one of his brothers or Arthur has the other half. Like maybe it's something that they keep around because, you know, like, oh, we're going to so-and-so's house tonight. Like, make sure you bring bring your chess pieces. Like, Yeah, and I guess since if they're differently designed, like a different look, they wouldn't need to be both. They wouldn't need to be white or black. You know, mm-hmm. they wouldn't need to be a different color because they're obviously a different style and who knows maybe like after you know repeated games your pieces learn how you play too like they might they might know what your move's going to be so you don't actually even have to say like okay you know what my knight's going to take your bishop because your knight's going to be like i got this don't worry ron being really good at chess is just like the remember all from a couple chapters back Something that we're all kind of forgetting. Yep, doesn't matter after this... Well, not this chapter, but this book. Yep. But yeah, it's going to keep going on. Like, Harry keeps going back to see the mirror until one night he's there, and then he finds Dumbledore in the room with him. And Dumbledore knows that Harry's been going to visit. And Dumbledore even mentions, like, no, I don't need invisibility cloak to become invisible. So we can assume it's been Dumbledore there the other times that Harry or Ron and Harry went to to go see the mirror. And then this is like the first interaction and kind of heart to heart that we get between Elvis Dumbledore and Harry Potter. 
for me kind of was like a red flag because this also sets up kind of the timbre of further interactions between them because it's Dumbledore giving Harry a lot of information and answering questions that Harry literally has. But then it's also kind of undercut with Dumbledore lying to Harry not to give him all of the information, which is kind of damning for, for both of them. Also at the very end of the chapter, Harry realizes, okay, you know, when I asked Dumbledore what he saw in the mirror, he said, you know, he saw himself with a pair of warm wool socks. He's like, yeah, well, that was a very personal question, so maybe he wouldn't be 100% truthful. I know what I would see in the mirror, but it, it's a personal thing where I would see myself in a social group picking up on a bunch of social cues. Because I know I'm really bad at picking up social cues. I would know that, hey, there's me telling a joke. Oh, I'm pulling back a little bit because I could see that that person over there, not so much liking the joke. Oh, there's a person being quiet over there in the corner. I'm going to talk to them a little bit and bring them back into the group. And then everybody's enjoying themselves and having fun because I'm being awesome and picking up on these social cues. It's, But that's a personal thing to admit. Uh, to somebody that, you know, that's something that I I personally feel that I'm lacking in. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, maybe you don't want to share that right away. For me, I'm very go with the flow about everything. I think for me, it wouldn't be anything like so tangible or, you know, present as like the Quidditch Cup or the House Cup. It would, it would just be like purpose, I guess. And I don't want that to sound darker depressing at all but i ultimately don't have an end goal for things because again i i'm go with the flow i'm happy for what i have anything else that comes out of it is is bonus like that's all you know extra gravy baby it's just cool hey i got this now i mean ultimately it'd be great to know where I'm going and what I'm destined for. Like, and for Harry, that seems to be like, Hey, what do I want? What do I need? Well, it's, it's family. It's that something he's always been lacking. Uh, and then there's a moment where after Dumbledore kind of outlines, like, well, do you know what this mirror is? Do you know what it does? Again, leading him into it. And then, and then, and then, okay, you got it. That Dumbledore's final hike. Well, no, it's it's not meant to show just you, but ultimately what what you desire, what you need. Don't worry, tomorrow, Mir's going to be in a different spot. You're never going to see it again. He's going to. But then Harry catches Dumbledore off guard. And I kind of like this moment because, again, and I quote Harry saying, Sir, Professor Dumbledore, can I ask you something? Dumbledore says, obviously, you've just done so. You may ask me one thing, one more thing, however. And then Harry asks, what do you see when you look in the mirror? And this really catches Dumbledore off guard because he says, I, I see myself holding a pair of thick woolen socks. Just very plain, very clean. And then, like you mentioned before, we do find out later that when 
Dumbledore's in front of the mirror, he's seeing Grindelwald. And I think it's safe to assume at this point, too, that maybe that's what Dumbledore's seeing. Because, again, this is all from ancillary material. It's coming from the second Fantastic Beast movie. It That just seems to kind of be maybe his driving force. Who knows? Maybe he sees, you know, Harry dying and, you know, Voldemort destroyed for it. We, we don't know. But I think at this point, and it's done in just like a very kind of quick throwaway line in the next paragraph where it's like, it was only back in bed that it struck Harry that Dumbledore might not have been quite truthful. But then he thought, it quite a personal question. It's it's so heavy. But then they just try to like brush it away in the same breath. Because, yeah, Dumbledore's ulterior motives here, we're not going to learn for like another five books. And I'm still not convinced right now that Dumbledore's aware that Harry needs to die. <laughs> I, I think that comes along a lot later. I think he knows he's a key to something, you know, because of the prophecy that was made by, which we'll learn about later. Um, but yeah, this is, again, at the very end of a chapter, much a Harry coming to a realization about a conversation he just had, just like with conversation he had with Hagrid. Oh, when I pressed him about Snape not liking me, Hagrid couldn't meet me meet my eye when he said it i think he's maybe he's hiding something a little bit so when you're telling a story you got to keep on laying on more mysteries to keep you reading and i think this is a great mystery that that jk rowling leaves in front of us and we're going to start to get the answers to some of those mysteries with the very next chapter with nicholas flamel